Well, good morning, everyone. So good to see you. If I haven't met you, my name is David, and I serve here at Trinity as lead pastor. Glad that you're here. Sunday after Thanksgiving, everybody full? Everybody satisfied? This morning, we're going to talk about the sin of gluttony. I'm um, just kidding. Just kidding. I'd rather talk about your sins than mine. So, um, but I hope you had a great. I hope you had a great Thanksgiving. It's good to be together. We are in our second to last week of our series through First and Second Peter, and then we're going to go into a Christmas series, of course, beginning December 10th. Um, Peter. What I find really interesting about Peter is that he. Uh, he was present for the first coming of Jesus, right? So we talk in Christian circles about the first coming of Jesus and the second coming of Jesus. The first coming we read about in the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And Peter was there for all of that. I mean, imagine what it would have been like to walk with Jesus and to see him uh, do the miracles that he did and the healings and the teachings. And, and Peter was a part of that. And is one of the things that qualified him to write these letters and to speak with such authority. But Peter was also looking forward to the second coming of Jesus, the return of Jesus. 2,000 years later, it seems like, why would they have expected the return of Jesus back then? And yet history tells us that uh, they did. In fact, nowadays, we often pray with our eyes closed and our heads bowed. There's nothing sacred about that. It's just a way of focusing, and it's a sign of reverence. But history tells us that at this time in history, the early believers actually prayed not with their eyes closed and their heads bowed, but with their eyes wide open and their heads lifted up because they were expecting at any moment for Jesus to return. And yet we read a couple weeks ago that Peter has come to the realization, the Lord has revealed to him that uh, you're going to not be on earth for the second coming of Christ. Your time on earth is coming to an end. And yet Peter, so much of his teaching was about the return of Jesus. In fact, his teaching about the second coming of Christ was one of the reasons why he was being attacked by so many other people. And this morning's passage is about the second coming of Christ. And as we look at this passage this morning, I want us to understand that the power in this passage is not just to give us information and insight into what that day will be like, but it's actually to help us know how we should live today in the light of that day. All right, and so we're gonna dive into this. I just wanna say up front, this is a topic where there's many different views in many different directions by many people who love Jesus. And I'm not going to wade into it too much, but I am going to show some different ways of understanding what Peter says. And almost everything I want to say this morning, we can agree to disagree on certain things. What we really need to agree on is the truth that there is a blessed hope. Jesus is returning for his people. And that is the thing that we can all look forward to together. All right. So 2 Peter chapter 3, beginning in verse 8, Peter says, You must not forget this one thing, dear friends. A day is like a thousand years to the Lord, and a thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. But the day of the Lord will come as unexpectedly as a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise, and the very elements themselves will disappear or dissolve in fire, and the earth and everything on it will be found or exposed to deserve judgment. And since everything around us is going to be destroyed like this, what holy and godly lives you should live, looking forward to the day of God and hurrying it along. On that day... God will set the heavens on fire and the elements will melt away in the flames. But we are looking forward to the new heavens and new earth as he has promised. 
It's a world filled with God's righteousness. So this morning, we're gonna learn three things from this passage about the Lord. We're gonna learn about the patience of the Lord. We're gonna learn about the day of the Lord and the promise of the Lord. The patience of the Lord, the day of the Lord, the promise of the Lord. Let's talk first about the patience of the Lord. Peter starts this passage by saying, hey, you must not forget this one thing. How many of you have learned in life there's a difference between cognitive forgetfulness and functional forgetfulness? There's a difference between not actually being able to remember something and living as if something isn't true even though you know it is. Cognitive versus functional. Let me give you an example. This past Thursday as I was halfway into my third piece of pecan pie, Func- uh, cognitively, I did not forget that there's a lot of sugar in there. <laughs> it's not good for you. Every piece of pie represents about two hours on the elliptical machine. Like, f- cognitively, I remembered that. But functionally, I forgot. <laughs> I was just going in. And most of the problems in our lives are not because we've forgotten certain principles, but it's because we live as if those principles are not true. And that's what Peter is saying here. He's not saying, hey, just cognitively remember that Jesus is returning. What he's saying is you have to live your life in the light of this truth. Do not functionally, behaviorally forget that the day of the Lord is coming. And then he goes on to say, the Lord is not being slow about his promise. That was the accusation. People were saying, well, maybe God's forgotten that he's coming back. Maybe Jesus didn't say he was coming back. Maybe Peter made this up. But Peter says, the Lord is not being slow about his promises. Some people think, no, he's being patient for your sake. And I love this passage because it gives us a glimpse into one of my favorite characteristics of God, that God is patient. How many of you are grateful that God is patient? (laughs) He's been patient with you and he is patient with me. God is patient. And if we're gonna understand God's patience, we have to understand two things about God, his perspective and his preference. Let's talk first about his perspective. Peter said, a day is like a thousand years and a thousand years is like a day. If you have little kids in your life, you learn quickly that they don't think about time the way you think about time. For little kids, everything is tomorrow or yesterday. There's no future. And so my youngest daughter, when she's telling stories, it's like, it, it's like she's telling stories like it just happened. It could be three years ago, but her sort of grasp, her understanding of time is, is limited. When, when Maddie, our youngest, when she would get angry with Aaron and I, I know those of you that see Maddie in this building smiling and, and just this beam of light, you can't envision her getting angry, but she has her moments. And when she gets angry with Aaron and I, there's a bunch of different things she might say to us, and some of them I would not say to you. Um, but one of the things that she started saying to us a few years ago is she'd get very frustrated and she'd go, Dad, you go to jail for five minutes. (laughs) You go to jail for five minutes. That's her grasp on time is like five minutes is a significant punishment for dad. We kind of laugh about the gap in understanding between kids' understanding of time and adults' understanding of time. But how much greater do you think the gap is between the way that we understand time and the way that God understands time? See, God's relationship to time transcends our finite minds because he's always existed. He's eternal. God exists outside of time. And so when Peter says a day is like a thousand years to the Lord and a thousand years is like a day, he's not giving us a strict mathematical formula. He's not saying this is actually how it 
works, he's giving us a general perception or principle that reveals God's perception and experience of time, and it's nothing like ours. And so when God seems like he's slow with his promises for you, when it feels like there's a delay in your own life, what we need to trust is God's planning and his timing and his perspective. His perspective. But the other way in which we need to understand his patience is his preference. And his, pref- his preference, Peter says it this way, he doesn't want anyone to be destroyed, but he wants everyone to repent. I love that about God. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. His heart is for everyone to turn to him, to repent, and to place their faith and trust in Jesus. God's heart is for lost people. Luke chapter 15, one of my favorite um, chapters in all of the Gospels, Peter, or Jesus tells three stories about lost things, a lost sheep, a lost coin, and a lost son. And when you read through that, it becomes so evident how much God values lost things, that he would leave the 99 to go after the one. God loves lost things. And the question that we have to ask ourselves as we think about this passage is, do I love lost people as much as God loves lost people? Do the things that break God's heart break my heart? And he's being patient towards us so that your family members can know Jesus. He's not come back yet because of his patience. He's giving everyone as much time and opportunity as possible. But what sort of urgency should that put in our hearts? The Lord could come back at any time. And when he comes back, he will have been fully patient with us. And the question is more as his people, where is the urgency in our hearts? to let people know of his love and his grace and his mercy. Knowing this about God should compel us to urgency urgency in sharing our faith. God's delaying because he's not forgetful, but because he's patient, and he's delaying for our good. John Piper says this. He says that God's providence is not a code to be deciphered. It's a plan to be trusted. God's providence or his sovereign ways is not a code for you and I to decipher. It's a plan to trust. And here's what this means. Even the mysteries of God's ways and timings, if we could fully understand them, they would only serve to reveal to us more of his goodness and his greatness, the patience of the Lord. The second thing in this text is the day of the Lord. Although the Lord is being patient, there is an end coming, the day of the Lord. It says the day of the Lord will come unexpectedly as a thief. And if you're new to the Christian faith, maybe this term, day of the Lord, is new to you. Now, <clears throat> the term, the day of the Lord, it was used throughout the Bible in a bunch of different um, ways. Typically, the day of the Lord represented a day on which God would uh, judge his enemies but save his people. And there were different times in the history of Israel where it was called the day of the Lord, where God would step in and deliver his people. Even the cross, the crucifixion was referred to as the day of the Lord. The day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2 was referred to as the day of the Lord. But Peter here, in talking about the day of the Lord, he's talking about the second return or the second visit, the return of Christ. And in the Christian faith, we have this belief that Jesus Christ was crucified, was buried, resurrected on the third day, and over the course of the next 40 days, he appeared in a physical resurrected body to many people, to all of his apostles and disciples, and to 500 different people at one time saw the resurrected Jesus for 40 days. And at the end of those 40 days, there's this event called the Ascension. And the Ascension is where Jesus is surrounded by his followers, and he just ascends into heaven in their vision. And they're just left there staring like this, like, what is going on? 
I was thinking earlier, like when I was in uh, high school and we would take regents exams. Anybody remember regents exams? They still do those. And we would sit in a big gym and they have all our desks spread out. And it was always in the summer. So it was like 102 degrees in there. And they had these like jet sized fans in there doing, felt like they were doing nothing. And you're in there sweating and trying to take your test. Well, me and my friends, we always had this little, this little thing that we would do at the beginning of the test. As we all sat down, we would all look up at the same spot on the ceiling. There was nothing there, but we, the four or five of us would just stare. And literally within like 10 seconds, the whole room is going. <laughs> Everyone is staring up because we're staring up. And I kind of picture the disciples just standing there, staring up and looking, Jesus, are you coming back? Neat trick. Like, what's happening next? And the angels appear and they say to the disciples, just as you saw him go, you will see him return. And the second coming of Christ, that Jesus is going to come back and receive his people to himself and, and, and establish his kingdom fully and finally uh, on earth, we call that in the Christian faith the blessed hope. It's this blessed hope that we have that Jesus has not left us and forgotten about us, but that Jesus told his disciples, I've gone to prepare a place for you. And I'm going to come back and receive you to myself. This is one of the great faiths and doctrines of Christianity. And in this passage, Peter gives us some insight into what the day of the Lord will look like. And I want to just say that there's a lot of discussion and debate about Peter's words here. How literal should we take these things? How metaphorical are these things? Are these metaphors? Are they real? What's Peter talking about? And it's okay to disagree on this. This is what I would call like a secondary doctrinal issue. It's not a big deal if we don't agree. But I want to point a few things out, and I just want to share my opinion with you on this. So, the first thing that will happen is it says that the heavens will pass away with a terrible noise or with a roar. And the heavens are like the canopy above us. And to pass away means to no longer be there. That someday, uh, in that moment, something is going to happen in the heavens where they will not exist the way that we previously knew them to be. And this word roar is a onomatopoeia, which is a, a word that sounds like what it's describing. So it's like this combination of noises. This is what I learned this week. If you can take all these noises and imagine them at the same time, the swish of an arrow, rumbling of thunder, the crackling of flames, the screams of a lash <coughs> as it descends, the rushing of mighty waters, the hissing of a serpent. All at one time, this immense roar, and then in essence, the canopy of heaven will roll up like a rattling window blind when someone loses a grip on it. The heavens will pass away with a roar. Then he says the very elements will disappear in fire. The basic elements of the universe include things like earth, air, fire, and water. The entire cosmos will be dissolved. And this word in the Greek here for burned up can mean burned with an intense heat. Now, whether Peter envisions the complete destruction of this world as we know it or its purification by fire is unclear. Because fire can do two things. It can destroy things, but it can also purify things and make things the purest version of themselves. And this is really where the debate about Peter's words and the day of the Lord um, comes together. Let me explain it this way. Um, when my wife and I got married, uh, we, we, uh, I always say in, in premarital counseling, we sh there should always be a conversation about the merging of TV shows. Because we didn't watch the same TV shows, and now we're trying to figure out. Back then, this is before streaming services, and DVR existed, but I don't even think we had it. And so we were, like, trying to figure out, like, Thursday night, 8 o'clock, like, I got a show, you got a show. 
what are we going to do? This is a big marriage issue. Like, what's the, what's the deal? And so, you know, most of my shows that I watched were on ESPN or the Food Network. And Erin loved shows on HGTV. She's, uh, she's handy. She fixes things. She's much better at that than me. I don't watch those shows because it's humiliating for me to watch other people easily do things that I could never do. And, uh, but she loves watching these shows. And Trading Spaces was a big show back then. And then, you know, Chip and Joe Games came along with their show. And, you know, when you watch these shows on HGTV and similar channels, most of them are renovation shows, right? I'm not even sure of shows that completely knock an existing structure down and build from the ground up, although that happens, of course. So if you knock an entire building over and build from the ground up, you have something that I would say is quantitatively new. It's not existed before. It's quantitatively new. It's, it's on its own, it's new. But when you renovate something, I would say you're making it qualitatively new. So it's still there, but you've made everything about it new. And both are new when you experience them. And so the debate about the day of the Lord and the end of times is, is God going to make a heavens and an earth that is quantitatively new? Or is he going to make a heavens and an earth that is qualitatively new? Basically, is he going to destroy everything we know and build it up from nothing? Or is he going to do a renovation work, a restoring and redeeming work on creation and on this earth as we currently experience it. And people feel differently about this. And again, I'm not sure that it matters necessarily in the long run, but I'm just gonna put my cards on the table and let you know that like, if I have to have an opinion on this, my opinion on this is that when, when the Bible talks about the new heavens and the new earth, that we're talking about something that is qualitatively new. That God is going to take the heavens and the earth as he created them and called them good. And he's not going to destroy them, but he is going to restore them. He's going to renew them. And that the new heavens and the new earth is going to be like the garden was in many ways, but much more developed. Like we see a city in the book of Revelation. Now, a lot of my friends feel differently about this, and you might feel differently about this. And it's okay. Let me give you a few reasons why I lean this way. The first reason I lean this way is because Jesus, when he was resurrected, his resurrected body was not quantitatively new, it was qualitatively new. He still looked like himself. People still recognized him. He had a physical body. In fact, he still had the scars from the cross in his side and in his hands and in his feet. The resurrected Jesus was not a new Jesus. It was Jesus who was restored, redeemed, and glorified. I think that's what our experience will be as individuals. And if it's true for you and I, I think it will be true also for creation. The second reason why I tend to think we're headed towards a qualitatively new heavens and new earth is that, according to Romans 8, creation itself groans for redemption. And if creation is groaning for redemption, then will not the Lord redeem it and restore it and make it new? God always seems to renew and not destroy parts of his creation that are marred by sin. And then the last reason why I think that the new heavens and the new earth are going to be established here in a qualitatively new way, perfect in every single way, is because I just think it makes the best sense of the meta-narrative of Scripture that God who created a perfect heavens and a perfect earth is not going to destroy it because of sin, but he's going to do what he does best, which is redeem and restore and make new. Now, whether you agree with me on that or not, it really doesn't matter. We can disagree on that. What we must agree on is this. The way in which we should live our lives should change based on the fact that Jesus is coming. 
and that we do have this future hope. And that's Peter's primary focus here. Peter's primary focus is not actually to give us detailed information about the day of the Lord. Peter's main focus here is to say someday everything is going to change. Nothing's going to exist the way that it used to exist. Everything's going to be dissolved and made new in some way. Because that's true, here's what he says. Here's how you should live holy and godly lives. And this is the challenge to our hearts this morning. Are we, this morning, are we living holy and godly lives in the light of this day of the Lord that Jesus is returning and everything will be exposed and everything will be seen and everyone will be held accountable for every action and God will restore all things. We should live holy and godly lives. What does it mean to be holy? To be holy means to be set apart. We say this often here at Trinity. You're not just set apart from things, you're set apart for things, right? So we're not, to be holy is not just I'm set apart from bad behavior, bad attitudes, bad living, that's good, but to be truly holy means now I'm set apart for greater things, for God's things, for his kingdom. And throughout his letter, Peter gives us glimpses of what it means to be holy. He says, be committed to your own sanctification, 1 Peter chapter 1. 1 Peter chapter 1, express a sincere love for brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, 1 Peter 2, be subject to every human institution. Honor the authority in your life. 1 Peter 4, be willing to embrace suffering for the sake of the gospel. 1 Peter 4, loving acts of service to the family of God. This is what it means to be holy. And then he says, be godly. And to be godly simply means to reflect the character of God in our lives. That when people see us and experience us and spend time with us and work with us and live with us and share space with us, that there's something of our lives that is reflecting the very nature and character of God to them. Charles Spurgeon, the English preacher, said it this way to his audience in London. He said, as you walk the streets of London, you've got the reputation of God in your hands. As you walk the streets of London, you've got the reputation of God in your hands, in your lives, in your words, in your actions. And let me say to you this morning, as you walk the streets of Syracuse or Clay or Liverpool or Baldinsville, or East Syracuse, or wherever you come from, as you walk the halls of your highway or walk the halls of your, of, your, of your school students, as you walk through your workplaces, as you go out into the neighborhood, the very reputation of God is at stake. Are we living godly lives that reflect his character and who he is. This is how we are to live in response to the day of the Lord. Now, <clears throat> before we get to the last point, if we don't believe in the day of the Lord, the blessed hope, the final purposes and plans of God, it leads to some things that are harmful. Uh, for some people, it leads to something called hedonism. And hedonism is the lifestyle that says the pursuit of pleasure over everything else. Because listen, if I was nothing to begin with, and I am nothing now, and I will be nothing later, then just eat, drink, and be merry. Right? Just enjoy life and have as many pleasurable experiences as you can. It can also lead to apathy, because who cares what happens if this all means nothing and it leads nowhere. It can also lead to despair. What is the point of all this? Where is the hope in this story? Barclay said it this way, without understanding the truth that life is going somewhere, there feels like there's nothing left to live for. And yet, for the Christian, we know life is going somewhere. It's going to the day of the Lord when Jesus will come and make all things new. So, the certainty of the day of the Lord and why we must not forget it is because it makes life about more than my temporary fleeting pleasure. It provides mission and purpose and meaning in life for me that it's all headed towards something and the Lord is being patient and there's a work for me to do in helping people turn to him and it gives me hope for a sure future. And then lastly this morning, so we have the patience of the Lord, the day of the Lord, and the promise of the Lord. I'm gonna ask Pastor Antonia to come on up.
Verse 13, this is how it ends. Peter says, but we are looking forward to the new heavens and the new earth he has promised. It's a world filled with God's righteousness. Now, I couldn't get past this verse this week as I thought about this future that we're headed to. And it reminded me of some very important things. One thing it reminded me was this. Our ultimate hope, our greatest hope, is not dependent upon our works, but it's dependent upon his promise. The new heavens and the new earth, he has promised it. And because he is a God who does not lie and keeps all of his promises, we can have confidence that this is a sure, steady, certain, reliable hope on which to build our lives, that there is coming a day where there will be a new heavens and a new earth and a world, this is the phrase that's really stuck with me all week, a world filled with God's righteousness. After we finish the series, we're going to do a short series in December on Christmas called Arrival. But then in January, as we go into the new year, we're going to actually spend about two months in the book of an Old Testament prophet, Habakkuk. And we're going to learn a lot of things from him. But in Habakkuk, God gives the prophet this vision of what the world is ultimately going to be. In Habakkuk uh, 2.14, he says it this way, that there's a day coming when the glory of God will cover the world, cover the earth, like the waters cover the seas. How many square inches of the sea are covered by water? 100%, of course. Habakkuk is seeing that there's a day coming where every square inch, every corner of God's creation, including every corner of our lives and our hearts and our homes, will be covered with his glory. It'll be his righteousness everywhere in this world. And righteousness of God simply means this. It will be the right ways of God. Everything the way it was intended to be. Everything right. Everything will work right. Listen, you will work right. Physically, you got issues. You're struggling physically with different things. In the new heavens and the new earth, you, all of that will be gone. You will work right. Internally, you struggle with regrets and pain and shame and guilt. It'll be gone on that day. You will work right. The righteousness of God will fill the entire earth. Our relationships will be right. Think about all the brokenness in our relationships. I talked to some people in our church this morning who've already said to me, this was a hard week. It was a hard week. For some people, holidays are very hard for a variety of reasons. And one of the reasons is because a lot of times our relationships with each other, especially the people that we are closest with, they're not right. But when the righteousness of God fills the entire world, there will be no more broken relationships. Everything will be right. God's cleansing renewal will one day wash over this globe and restore all things. And the new creation will be characterized not by the wickedness, brokenness, and curse that we all deal with now, but by the righteousness of God, his rightful reign and rule over every corner of creation. And ultimately, righteousness will dwell in the new heavens and the new earth. You know why? Because the righteous one will be there. So many things I'm looking forward to about heaven, right? Um, so many things. Some people are excited about heaven because, you know, no more sickness, right? Praise God. Some of us are looking forward to heaven because we're going to be reunited with people that we've loved and we've lost. But the best thing about heaven is that Jesus is there. Jesus is there in his perfect righteousness. Paul says, we see now dimly, like through a glass, 
But on that day, we will behold him face to face. And as we behold him, we will become like him, perfectly bearing the image of God like Jesus did when he came and lived on this earth. And let me finish with this thought. The meta-narrative of scripture, which simply means the big story of scripture, is that there's a God who wants to live with his people. He wants to dwell with us. You go all the way back to Genesis 1, and God creates this beautiful creation, and he, and he basically, it's a temple unto himself. Genesis 1, the poem in Genesis 1, it's, it's a temple poem. It's basically a coronation poem that there's a temple being built for a God to dwell in. And when God rests on the seventh day, it wasn't because he was tired, it's because God's rest in their temple he was satisfied. So on the seventh day of creation, God rests, which means he's created this, this world for his presence to dwell in so that he might dwell with his people. And then he creates Adam and he creates Eve and he walks with them in the garden and he talks with them in the garden and he wants to be with them in relationship. And then sin enters the world and there's this distortion and this breaking apart and this corroding of our relationships with ourselves, with each other, with creation, and most importantly, with God. And what does God do? He doesn't give up and say, well, I tried, to, I tried to dwell with them. Holy Spirit, you saw, right? I mean, you saw that I tried to hang out with them. And look at what they did. They chose their own way. What does he do? He immediately begins to make more ways and plans to dwell with us. He begins to reveal himself as a burning bush. He reveals himself through the 10 plagues to his people. He reveals himself as a pillar of cloud uh, by day and a pillar of fire by night. And then he instructs them to build a tabernacle so that he can go with the people as they travel through the wilderness. And then when they come into the promised land, he instructs them to build a temple so there's a place for him to dwell with his people. And then he sends prophets and priests and kings to speak for him so that he can dwell amongst his people. Then ultimately we get to the New Testament and he sends his son, the incarnation, that he might come and dwell within us, dwell with us, be one of us. And then Jesus says, I'm going to leave, but it's good if I leave. Because if I don't leave, I won't send my spirit. And now where does God dwell? Not in the tabernacle, not in a temple, not even in this building. Sorry to burst your bubble. God doesn't live here. God's presence dwells in all those who believe. It's his Holy Spirit. It's the spirit of God. It's the spirit of Jesus. It's the spirit of truth. Can you see the meta narrative of scripture? God is looking for ways to be with us, to dwell with us. And in the new heavens and the new earth, that'll be the best thing about heaven. He'll be with us and we'll be with him. I want to read to you as we finish Isaiah 25. The prophet Isaiah has this vision of the new heavens and the new earth. And I actually going to invite you, if you want, to close your eyes and just listen to these words. And if you have this sort of mind where you can actually imagine and envision these things as I read them, Go ahead and do that. Try and envision what this day is going to be like. Isaiah 25, verse 6 says, In Jerusalem, the Lord will spread a wonderful feast for all the people of the world. Try to envision all the people in the family of God around this feast. It will be a delicious banquet with clear, well-aged wine and choice meat. And there, I love this phrase, there he will remove the cloud of gloom. Some of us feel this cloud of gloom in our souls hanging over us all the time. On this day, he will remove forever the cloud of gloom. The shadow of death that hangs over the earth, he will remove it. He will swallow up death forever. And the sovereign Lord will wipe away all tears. 
he will remove forever all insults and mockery against his land and his people. The Lord has spoken. And in that day, the people will proclaim. So now you have to envision yourself doing this because this will be you. You will proclaim on that day these words. This is our God. We have trusted in him and he saved us. This is the Lord in whom we trusted. Let us rejoice in the salvation he brings. This morning, God, we rejoice in you and in the salvation you bring. We say thank you for your patience towards us, that you are willing that none would perish, but that all would come to know you. Let that compel us with urgency to bring the good news of the gospel to our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, our family, to pray for opportunities to share the hope that we have. God, we thank you for the day of the Lord, this certain hope that we have that this is headed somewhere and that on that day, you'll make all things right and you'll make all things new. And we thank you for your promises that they're yes and amen and that you keep every one of them. We bless your name, amen. Let's stand together and respond by singing this song about the truth of who Jesus is and what he's done for us.